0: One Hope Church Heavenly Father, you are Absolutely perfect, Um, that when we approach you, that you are complete wisdom, you're perfection, um, and you're great. Um, And when we come to you in humbleness, we're able to see our imperfections and our incompleteness. Um, Father, we thank you that you welcome us with open arms. Um, And as we go into James uh, today, uh, we thank you that you give us clear instructions on how to approach you humbly, Father. Um, I ask that you remove myself from the situation, that it's not my words, it's not my thoughts, but this is you speaking through me, Father. Um, Spirit, we, wel- we welcome you here, um, into the hearts of people here, um, that they can be receptive to your voice and not mine. We love you, Father, and just now I pray. Amen. Amen. Sweet. So there's a lot to cover today, so I kind of just want to jump in. Um, again, we're going to be doing James chapter 3, verse 13 through James 4, chapter 10. As you kind of start opening your Bibles and your note, uh, notebooks and stuff like that, I do want to do kind of a review of what we've done in James so far because we've covered a lot towards the end of summer, towards the end of the book, and I want to make sure we don't forget kind of where we come from, especially because I'm going to be doing a lot of referencing from other parts in James. So the first big theme that James kind of talks about is faith and works. Um, Mark has talked about this two weeks ago, um, and the the fact that you have this faith is amazing, but faith without any kind of action is, is kind of pointless. You, you need the fruit of your faith to, to show the kind of faith that you have. And there's so many examples in scripture of that thought. But James specifically, in James chapter 1, 19 through 27, and James 2, 14 through 26, you can see that idea that faith has action. It's not just sitting around and, and oh yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. And even that word doesn't really mean anything anymore. There's, there's an action that needs to be produced. There's the Christian in trials. Um, apparently, James' um, James's audience was experiencing a lot of uh, persecution right now, and he was just giving them encouragement, saying to have joy. Not necessarily happiness, because happiness is kind of an earthly thing. It's relative that you can wake up happy and then get sad later on in the day, but joy is everlasting. So he wants us to have that kind of mindset that we are eternal. Like, this is a... Limited body, and eventually there is going to be that everlasting life, and to have that joy and that perspective. They're showing partiality. Apparently, there is there are some issues with the rich and poor, and showing kind of more grace towards one group and and whatnot. And he's just kind of saying that God doesn't show partiality; that He wants us to respect each other as equals. And that's seen in James chapter two, one through thirteen. And the last week, Michael was talking about the deadly tongue, how our tongue can be a small flame and produces a wildfire, um, that the simplest words can produce chaos. Um, and he just kind of gives this caution to watch your tongue and to make sure that you're guarding your heart, guarding your tongue, and kind of being in self control with your tongue. Specifically, he uh, challenges those who are called to teach, um, which is amazing because now I'm teaching, so I have to watch what I'm what I have to say. Um, but he's not challenging just teachers. Um, like I am a elementary school teacher. He's not challenging that kind of teacher where you're just teaching. He's challenging the people who are sitting at a pulpit and preaching the word. He's challenging the people who are leading a Bible study or the person who's discipling someone and teaching on God's word. And he's challenging them and telling them that you got to be careful because what you say can really affect someone's faith. And that's, that, that is a big deal that you want to watch what you're saying and make sure you're not causing other people to stumble. And that's seen in James chapter 1, verse 19, verse 26, and James 3, 1 through 12. So today, James is kind of pulling from the Old Testament and pulling truths from the Old Testament. He's not changing them. He's just making them more practical, giving us a practical way of living and a practical way of viewing wisdom, kind of like a practical Proverbs, if you to think about it that way. So um, we are going to be reading uh, James thirteen or 3, 13 through 4, 10, which is a lot of content. Um, and it kind of seems like there's chapter 3, there's chapter 4, but hopefully I can show you that it's one fluid thought. So I am going to read um, in the ESV version. Y'all can, you're all welcome to follow along with me. So again, this is James three thirteen. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him, show, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but the earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made us to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, and you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray again. Father, um, we thank you so much for your scripture, um, that this is the sword of the Spirit, and this is a tool that we can use to resist the devil, and this is our victory towards you. We thank you for what you have to say today, and again, I ask that it's, what, it's your words and not mine. We love you, Father, Just Jesus' pray. Amen. Sweet. So again, a lot of things to talk about, but the main point... Can be found in the first section, kind of verse 13 through 18, um, and the main point specifically is there is god's pure wisdom, and then there's man's false, limited wisdom. Two separate wisdoms: man's false wisdom comes from an ugly place and produces ugly things. If you come to God humbly, and I emphasize humbly, he will purify you and he will make the pleasures and he, and he will give you the pleasures of being in unity with him. This includes the satisfaction of seeing his character and having a wisdom more like his. All right, so in Romans 12, verse 2, it says, Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So, thinking about God's character and the pursuit of wisdom and the difference between man's wisdom and God's wisdom... I think about, okay, so the best way to approach this is approaching the throne. That he is the divine wisdom. He is the one that knows everything. He is complete and perfect, right? In the pursuit of knowing his wisdom, you're pursuing his character, right? You're understanding more like him. You're understanding his, his ways of thinking. You're understanding his actions, his example. So I correlate the idea of pursuing wisdom, pursuing to character. So the more wise you are, the more you're like his character and vice versa. The more like God's character, the more wise you are. So it's the pursuit of his character, not necessarily the pursuit of wisdom. And I think that's an easier concept to understand, is pursuing his character. Right? So um, if you look at, if you think about God's character, you want to think about his examples. And what does he give us to look at? There's Jesus. He's the perfect example. He is God, fully man, fully God. He wasn't a man of just faith, where he'd kind of sit around, talk about some cool things, like, oh man, like, what a great prophet. No, 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 he was fully man, fully God. So that means he went out, and his ministry was to go. He went and made disciples, just as we are called to make disciples. He would pray for people. He would heal people. He would actually walk. He didn't just stay in the same synagogue and preach on Sundays. He was a man of action, and we are called to be the same, That we are called to do actions to go and make disciples. So um, I want to encourage you guys to start thinking about wisdom as not this, like, oh, I know everything, it's a wisdom that produces a, a go, an action, to go and, and serve the kingdom. So, looking at verse 13, um, which I will read, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So the word for wise um, here is similar to the word knowledge or philosophy, and the Hebrews actually enriched this word. This is a Greek word, but they enriched it to mean something more like a practical knowledge. It's not just a knowledge but something you do with that knowledge, which I think James is getting at. And then in the same verse, verse uh, or in the same verse, the word understanding means something more like a specialist or, prof- or professionally skilled. So James is almost kind of asking this question, so raise your hand if you have the knowledge and the skill in the art of living. So I ask you the same thing. Raise your hand if you have the skills and the knowledge in the art of living. Obviously no one raises their hands because we know that we're not perfect. We know that we don't have everything together, that we mess up in living. So why pretend that you can? Why be arrogant and say, yeah, I got it all together? Why not understand and be humble that you need help and go to the man, to God, the person who has complete understanding, and receive his help, receive his wisdom? And that's something that needs to be done in humbleness. You're not going to approach him, yeah, I got everything together, but I could use some, some tips. That's not how it really works. You approach him in humbleness and submission, saying, I need your full help. I need your full guidance, your full support. So um, that idea of receiving wisdom from above, that is seen all throughout Scripture. That's not just in James. That's literally from Genesis to um, Revelations. Some examples include Job chapter 9, verse 4, Psalms 104, verse 24, Proverbs 1, 7, uh, chapter 2, 1 through 7, Uh, Chapter 3, 19 through 20. Chapter 9, verse 10. Jeremiah 10, 7. Daniel uh, 1, verse 17. Romans 11, verse 33. 1 Corinthians 1, 30. Ephesians 3, 10. I mean, the list goes on and on. That wisdom always comes from above. All our examples, wisdom comes from above. You think about Daniel. Think about David. You think about Jesus. Their wisdom comes from above. It's not this earthly man's wisdom, which I'm going to start addressing soon. So, this is where James begins to describe man's wisdom and God's wisdom, which I talked about before. There's a difference. There are two different things. He focuses first on man's wisdom by pointing out that we have jealousy and selfishness, something that we all have because we have that sinful nature. That jealousy and that selfishness creates a self-righteous and a self-justification attitude. say that again. That jealousy and that selfishness creates a self-righteous and a self-justification attitude. And that theme is going to appear frequently. That attitude spills over to man's wisdom. So if we choose to accept our wisdom, man's wisdom, James describes that as earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Let me talk about that. So, if we accept that wisdom, we accept the adjectives that it describes. Earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. What James means is that wisdom that we accept is limited to earthly bounds, characterized by human frailty, and generated by Satan's force. That's pretty intense. I'm going to read that again. If we accept our wisdom aside from God, without His help, without humbleness in His presence, and just our own wisdom we are accepting a limited and earthly-bound wisdom that's characterized by human frailty and generated by Satan's force. That's really intense. Especially in verse 17, we have a better option. So why, why accept that? So look at verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits impartial and sincere that's a way better adjective it's a better definition it's a better type of wisdom that we should want now looking at that definition and those adjectives kind of the first thing that I thought about at least was that wisdom goes back to the idea of action of not selfless or selfish but selfless so I want to read those different adjectives and kind of expand on them just a little bit so the first one is peaceable Helping create peace around you for the people around you. Gentle to the people around you. Open to reason. Understanding that you are not perfect and that the others can help you or that others, others may understand more than you. Hello. Understanding that people around you may know more than you. That includes God. Full of mercy. Mercy towards other people. Good fruits. What is produced around you? Impartial and sincere. Honest and humble to the people around you. Again, Scripture is showing us that it's not about us. Even this concept of wisdom, where we kind of tend to think, oh, wisdom means that I know things, that I'm kind of better, that I understand, or I have knowledge. Even in that that wisdom that we receive from the Lord, it's to produce for other people. It's to serve. It's to go and make disciples. It's to be like Christ and have that action to go, not to kind of keep it to yourself. Now, before I get too preachy and say like, all right, you're not righteous, you're not deserving, it's not about you, I'm the first one to admit it's not about me either. I'm not sitting here thinking like, well, yeah, it's not about you because it's about me. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying like, I'm the first one to admit that I need to be humble. I'm the first one to admit that I don't have this correct yet, that I'm still in the process of figuring this out, and I'm still in the process of humbling myself. It's funny, as I was uh, preparing for the talk, Elizabeth pointed out that one of my spiritual gifts is wisdom. And so she was kind of insinuating, like, I might have a good understanding of this idea of of wisdom. And I looked up the definition, and all it says is knowing the right thing to do and how to do that right thing. It's about choosing to actually do it, because I can be aware of the right thing and not do it, right? So having the spiritual gift of wisdom, all that really means is I'm the first one to understand I don't have it. Like I, <laughs> all that means is I'm the first one to approach the throne and say, I need your help, God. So I challenge you all to do the same. Humble yourselves and kind of do some self-examination self-exam- and think about what do I need to approach the throne with, right? Okay. So uh, moving on to kind of verse 18. Um, actually, before that, I want to do verse 16 super quick. Um, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder of every vile practice. And that's a thought that I'm going to kind of talk on a little bit later. But basically what James is saying is um, in the root of, of selfishness, in the root of jealousy, in that same location, that same ugly place, you can find anger. You can find envy. You can find all those kind of nasty things that comes with sin. It's the same idea, um, the same kind of chaos, same kind of disorder that James kind of brings up in chapter 1, verse 6. It says, But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. It's the same kind of chaos. That same place deep down inside that kind of makes you waver back and forth. It's the same place. So, verse 18. Let me read that. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by by those who make peace. So to me, James is kind of going back to verse 17 and kind of picking one that he really feels like he needs to talk on, which he chose, peace. And he he really does praise the idea of being a peacemaker. Um, so you think about what is a peacemaker? And I kind of figured out my own definition, and I wanted to kind of make it in layman terms, but I found something online that had a much better definition full of Bible verses. So I'm going to read it once with the Bible verses, and I'll read it again without... It's pretty intense. So, a peacemaker is someone who experiences the peace of God, found in Philippians 4 7, because he is at peace, Romans 5 1, with the God of peace, Philippians 4 9, through the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9 6, who indeed is our peace, Ephesians 2 14, and who therefore seeks to live at peace with all others. Romans twelve eighteen and proclaims the gospel of peace, Ephesians six fifteen so that others might have the joy and peace in believing, Romans 15, 13. A lot, that's, that's a lot to, to say and a lot to process. So I'm going to read it again without the Bible verses. So, a peacemaker. This is someone that James wants you to be, something to aspire to be. A peacemaker is someone who experiences the peace of God because he is at peace with the God of peace through the Prince of Peace who indeed is our peace, and therefore seeks to live at peace with others and proclaims the gospel of peace so that others might have joy and peace in believing. It's a lot of peace, right? So moving on to verse 1, there's this like weird transition to quarrels, and what James is kind of getting at is we need peace because we are sinful and mistakes happen, that fights happen, that quarrels happen, and so he's already kind of preparing you, saying we need peacemakers because this is an issue. But before we move on, I do want to kind of give you some practical ideas or steps to how to be a peacemaker. That can kind of be its own sermon, and I don't really have time to expand. But practically, really easily, four things. One, focus on God in your situation. Always being aware of him. Two, engage in service to the people involved. Having that service attitude of giving to people, right? And this can be done physically or spiritually. I mean, there's multiple ways of serving people. It's not just like, hey, let me, let me buy your food for today. There's multiple ways, right? Pray. We're constantly called to pray, and that's all over Scripture. You always want to pray. Pray for yourself. Pray for the person that you're fighting with. Pray, pray for peace. Pray for, for all the things that need to happen. And then four, do the things that God has told you to do. The constant things that God tells everyone, and then the things that God tells you to always be aware that you already have commandments, you already have what God has spoken to you, and and don't forget that. I think if you do those four things, you're on the way to being a peacemaker. So, like I said before, um, going to chapter 4, verse 1, it seems kind of random to be talking about wisdom, and then talking about peace, and then there's like quarrels. But the bridge that I kind of found is, because of the quarrels, you need peacemakers. Or, we need peacemakers because we understand... Quarrels will happen, right? So that's kind of the transition that James kind of has. So we're presented with a question in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, your own passions, are at war within you? So again, we're, we're presented with this question, what causes quarrels and what are they really about? The short answer is it's your selfish passion, prideful desires, and man's wisdom. These are all the things that are not from above. These are the things that are from here on earth or even below. Because remember I said that wisdom should be coming from above, right? And if we look at that answer and, and say it's our selfish passion, that's, that's pride. Prideful desire. It's the things that we want because we feel like we deserve it under man's wisdom of thinking that we are deserving, thinking that we're better, that we need it, right? That's, that's like an anti-God attitude of thinking that we don't need him, Right? And it even says, from below. If you go back to that definition of man's wisdom, of earthly, um, unspiritual, and demonic, demonic, it's, it's Satan's driving that. He's driving the sin. He's driving that selfish desire. And so when you, again, submit to the jealousy and the selfishness inside you, you're rejecting God. You're rejecting from above, and you're receiving that force from, from, from the Lord of this earth, from Satan, the enemy. So... James is trying to get uh, this audience to realize that jealousy is causing these fights. But not necessarily just jealousy, but that jealousy I've been talking about that's rooted in man's false wisdom that we think we deserve it. A prideful wisdom of thinking you know better and a prideful self-justification that you deserve it. That's like really hard because I think I deserve it and I self-justify all the time. We justify our role in fights by rationalizing the moral impurity of our actions. Again, that's like really intense and hard to accept. Like I need to do my own self-reflection on just that saying. We justify our role in fights by rationalizing the moral impurity of our actions. That we rationalize our sin. We say it's okay. Like, oh, I want this because it's like good for me. And you rationalize it and we get so numb to the sin. We get so numb to our ways of thinking. We get so numb to this earth because we're constantly living in it. And he's telling us to remove ourselves from that. Stop rationalizing it. Stop self-justifying yourself. That's hard. That's like a hard thing to sit in. Again, in verse 2, James is saying, you want what you don't have, so you become jealous of things you can't have. And that's causing the fights. So how do we defeat this? How do we defeat that jealousy? How do we defeat that envy? Again, that's like a whole another sermon in itself. But three things I just kind of pointed out. One, being satisfied in what you already have been blessed with. And that's important to think about. What you've already been blessed with. Because you are blessed. We are privileged. And it's hard to understand that because we compare ourselves to the people around us. But we are blessed and we are privileged. So we need to humble ourselves and realize we're already blessed. Trying to find other blessings and taking from people, especially because that's a cheap blessing, to have to create your own blessing. It's kind of cheap. That makes sense. Two, the wisdom we receive from the Lord by humbly approaching Him. You defeat that jealousy. You defeat that desire to accept yourself when you approach Him and you accept Him. When you start becoming less self-minded and more God-minded, you start rejecting those desires that are found inside of you. And then three through sanctification, by experiencing his character. Again, sanctification this idea that the more you're in unity with God's character, the more like him you become. That yes, we're in the long run, we are still sinful creatures, and while on earth, we will still be sinful. But the more you're with him in his unity, in God's unity, the more like him you become. The more wisdom you become, like I talked about earlier. So with that, we're able to battle the sin that is so potent inside of us. So going on to verse 2, uh, kind of 2 through 4, we're going to kind of chunk that together. James follows that thought by suggesting that instead of sitting around in your envy, why not approach the Lord about it? Instead of starting these fights, instead of saying like, oh, I want this or I deserve this, whatever, why not pray about it? And it goes back to what I was saying before about always being called to pray. So pray about it. Pray about those desires. Pray about those wants. But then immediately after, he gives us a warning that if we're approaching his throne arrogantly, saying like, oh, I want this. I want this Ferrari. I want this. House, I want this job, I want this whatever it 's all for me he 's going to reject that. He even says that if you approach him that way, you become an enemy of God now that 's an intense thing to say, and I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, you think about God as the the savior, the creator, the Father, right and then you think about the things of this earth when you choose the things of this earth because of that jealousy of the things that you want here, when you choose the things of this earth like these material things, these selfish desires. You're choosing your own idols that you create, your own self-God that you created, and you're choosing the Lord of this earth. You're choosing Satan. We're already committed to God. We already belong to him. He's our creator. He created us. He's our father. We belong to him. So when we choose to go to Satan and choose the things of this world, the fleeting things of this world, we're rejecting him and committing ourselves to another person. That becomes an adulteress, which is what James is talking about in... Verse 4, you adulterous people. And that's what he means. We're adulterous because we're already committed to someone. We already belong to someone, and we're choosing a different God. Right? So, um, in John 17, verse 14 through 18, it says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, telling you to resist the devil. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And you sent me into the world so that I have sent them into the world. For their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. And then in Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern that, what, what the will of God is, and what is good and acceptable and perfect. So yes, our God is jealous. He wants us to be with Him. He covets our unity with Him. And again, when we choose the things of this world, we're rejecting Him and choosing our own idol. We're becoming adulterous and ultimately His enemy because we're choosing to be with His enemy. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong that there are two types of jealousy. There's the jealousy I've been talking about that's rooted in man's sin, and rooted in our selfish desires, and then there's God's jealousy. It's a rightful jealousy. It's completely different. I don't want you to think it's the same thing, because God does not sin, and that's crucial to understand. In Exodus 20, verse 4 through 5, it says, You shall not make yourself an idol in the form of anything, in heaven, above, or on earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, Am a jealous God, so He's jealous because we belong to Him. He rightfully owns us, and so He covets us. That's why He's jealous. There's a difference because our jealousy is rooted in our selfish desires. His jealousy is rooted in right, what's rightfully His. He He wants what's His, and we are His. I hope that makes sense. So now, going back to the passage, uh, James is not talking about just kind of these gentle disagreements. He's talking about actual fighting, an argument, a heated argument, and maybe even an actual fist fight. So we as Christians, we fight. We're no different than someone that lives in this world when it comes to fighting. I mean, I, I remember having conversations with Michael all the time of arguments that happen within the church and then church splitting because of things so petty. Again, going back to that tongue that we talked about last week, that small flame can produce a wildfire. Fights happen even within the church. And that should be convicting. That should be self-examining your heart of why are you fighting? So, especially when you think about those fighting it rooted in jealousy, as James kind of describes, the same idea with the, the jealousy being described as earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil, same thing with the fights. It's earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. So, when we fight, because we will fight, and that's something to be aware of, that because of that sin, that natural tendency to quarrel will happen. We need to write, we need to think about, what personal desire am I trying to protect or to gain? What selfishness am I trying to exhibit? What personal desire am I trying to protect or gain? Honestly, facing what James is saying here is one of the most decisive steps in our faith, in our personal life. It requires tearing oneself away from self-justification and re- redirects oneself towards self-examination. The idea of approaching the throne involves you ripping apart yourself and realizing that it's, it's not about self-justification, it's self-examination. So, this is a violent uprooting of our selfishness. James dives right into the fact that our fights are at root about personal desires. His point is reminiscent of what he said in chapter 1, verse 14, where he refused to allow excuses for temptation. It says, people are tempted when they're uh, enticed by those evil desires. There the term was epithymia. This is again chapter 1, verse 14. The term there is epithymia, which if I'm not mistaken, again, I'm not like, I don't have a degree in Greek and Hebrew, so this is my best, best shot at it. It's this lustful desire. Here in James 1, or James 4, chapter 1, James chapter 4, verse 1, the term for desire is hedon, which speaks more distinctly of pleasures. So we get into fights because of the pleasures we desire for ourselves. So, as I kind of start winding down, James develops this idea that God is passionate about our unity. This is seen in... uh, Well, I'm going to actually just read the the whole kind of section. Verse 6 through 10. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So James is saying that God is passionate about our unity with him. Again, he covets us. He rightfully owns us, that we've committed ourselves to him, especially because he is our creator. He created us. He's our father. We belong to him, right? And so God wants us to be with him. But again, like I've been saying, you don't approach him this arrogant way of like, oh yeah, I've, I've got this and you're just kind of cool. You're like really nice to me. That's not the attitude. You approach him saying, wow, you're the creator. I submit myself to you. You approach him with your hands up in humbleness, Right? He even, James emphasizes that he, as the ultimate strength, he will humble ourselves because when we approach him, we approach him clean. But we ourselves are not clean. We are sinful. We are dirty. We're impure. So approaching him in that unity, we need to approach him knowing that we need to clean ourselves. And he is the cleaner. He's the cleanser. Right? He's the purifier. And even to emphasize that point in verse 9, James is clear that when we approach our sins that we should grieve, we should be sorrowful, we should be wretched because we understand that we rejected our God, that we became an enemy of our God, that we made ourselves impure. Right? Like that should make us sad. Sad that we are rejecting our creator. Sad that we've messed up. And this is something that's going to happen often because we are sinful. So we constantly need to be humbling ourselves and constantly need to be approaching the throne saying, I am so sorry, God, for rejecting you. I'm sorry that I was an adulterer. I'm, I'm sorry. Make me clean. Make me pure. Make me like you. Make me righteous. Make me holy like you. And in that, in that state, God is our Father. He picks us up. He holds us. He cradles us. He comforts us. He guides us. He gives us strength to continue. But again, you need to approach Him in humbleness. Right? And then in verse 7, it says specifically, resist the devil. To approach God, you're resisting the devil. You're putting him behind you. Now, that is easier said than done. Sometimes that's hard to say no to temptation. I mean, James says that there's no real excuse, but it's still hard, right? It's still hard to resist the devil. It's still hard to say no to the fleeting things of this world. It's hard, right? But he gives us the tools to do that. God gives us the tools to do that. In 2nd Peter verse 1 or 2nd Peter chapter 1 verse 3 says his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who causes by his own glory and goodness. And that was 2nd Peter chapter 1 verse 3 if you need to write that down. Romans 8 verse 13 says for if you live according to the flesh you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of your body, you will live. And he means live because you're living in unity with God. Ephesians 6.13 says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Again, that's Ephesians 6.13. He's starting to address the armor of God. And then later in verse 17, he says, Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. He gives us the tools to resist the devil. He gives us the armor to protect ourselves. He even gives us the weapon to fight the enemy. It's the same tool that gives us the victory in God, that we have scripture, we have the tools to resist the devil, and we have the tools to approach the throne. So, again, I hope you kind of realize what James is getting at, that we do need to approach the throne in humbleness, and in that there is true victory. In verse 10, it says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And that's a nice conclusion to this, because it's, it's kind of a Debbie Downer talk of like, oh, you're, you're not good, you're not righteous, you're impure. It's kind of like a sad, <laughs> it's kind of sad to think about. I was like, man, there is nothing good in me, because I am sinful. It's sad to think about. But his, the worth that we receive is given by him that he is worthy. He's worthy of praise. He's worthy of the glory. He gives us our worth. He gives us that authority to be able to sit at his table boldly, right? So it really isn't a Debbie Downer talk. It's a challenging, self-examining conversation that James is giving us to think about ourselves and kind of realize we're not perfect. We don't have it together. Let me go to the God who constantly calls me Let me go to the God that constantly wants me. And not only that, but He blesses me. He gives me worth. He makes me clean. I'm going to approach Him in humbleness because I'm aware of who He is. I'm aware that He is the Creator. I'm aware that He is the Alpha and Omega. I'm aware that He is the beginning of the end. I'm aware that He is perfect, that He is righteous, that He is holy, that from beginning to end of time, He is omnipresent. He's absolutely everything. He is Lord and He is sovereign. He brings us salvation. He gives us grace. We are aware of who He is. So because of that, I'm going to approach Him in humbleness, knowing what He's already done for me and what He will do for me. I hope that's an encouragement, that you don't leave here thinking like, man, like, wow, Ronaldo just kind of said I was not good. That I like I'm not really I don't have things together. Said, I'd rather you leave. Wow, the Lord spoke to me saying, I want you to be with me. I want you to be in my presence, know my character, be in unity with me. Do this in humbleness because you're aware of me. That should be an encouragement, because he gives you that strength. He makes you new, he redeems you. So as we kind of wind down back to the open time, I want you to answer James' call, my call, God's ultimate call. To approach Him in humbleness, come to the table, wanting that forgiveness. Approach the table in humbleness, with that self-examination, thinking about, man, like what were the ways that I was an adulteress this week? What are some of the things that I need to address to make clean again? Right, do this in humbleness. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are worthy. You're worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our attention. And you're worthy of our devotion. You're worthy of us approaching you in humbleness. We thank you that you forgive. We thank you that you love us, that you want to hold us. I ask for myself first and for this congregation and the people in our, in our lives, our family that's not here, church members that aren't here, that we can humble ourselves, reject our pride, reject the devil, resist him, and approach you, Father. And again, I thank you that every time we approach you, you open us with open hands, open arms, outstretched arms, Father, I ask that anything I say that's not of you that you reject, that I reject and the people who've heard me today reject and that they only hear your truth, they only hear what you had to say because you are perfection and you have exactly the right words to say. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray.